guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a great episode for you guys today. Uh, no updates. We're going to get straight to straight it. Straight to the meat of it. We have Jeff Swart, filmmaker, photographer, founder of Radical Media, and of course, as we all know, a Porsche enthusiast. Um, he's done uh, recent work with Porsche, Acura, Jeep, Forza, Red Bull Racing with Max Verstappen. Um, now, <laughs> did you see that? Uh, we watched some of these okay. advertisements. So this, <laughs> obviously this Formula One car was flown all over the United States <laughs> or driven all over the United States. I don't think you can drive a Formula One car across the country. No, yeah. Well, it was obviously towed somewhere. I didn't right. see of course, it's made to perceive that it was driven across the entire country. <laughs> right. But awesome, obviously, awesome little video. Yeah, awesome little video. But I'm looking at this rebel going, wow, that's why this thing costs like four dollars. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because they pay Max Verstappen <laughs> to fly all over the United States and put this thing in a in a truck and drag it all over the place. And, yeah. and film. I mean, the film awesome. is super cool. It must have cost, I don't know, a million or a million and a half dollars to produce. Really, really, really cool. Um, he did a stuff ton of stuff for Porsche for the 993, the Boxster um, and the 996 and the Cayenne. And I was thinking. Imagine the pressure of being the director on these films. Okay. They say, "Hey, we're almost we're almost dead." Okay, I suppose because we that was really right. we really really need these Boxster commercials to work. We really need this to work out. And uh, these nine nine six ones, this Cayenne, I don't, uh, I think it was Cayenne. Maybe it wasn't the nine nine six. This Cayenne stuff. This really needs to work, Jeff. Jeff, you got to make this work. This yeah. is really no. Really, I think he did because everybody ads as well. Okay, so you look you look at what Porsche is today, right? You look at this huge company that's worth just so much money. They bought a huge a majority stake in Volkswagen, right. blah, 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 hugely successful. But late 90s, early 2000s. It was over. Yeah. It was, they were dead in the water right. until the Boxster came out. But we, they didn't know that. Yeah, They didn't know that. So the pressure at the time for the marketing team, the art director, the producers, the director, Jeff, I mean, it must have been, they, they must have known. It must have been in the atmosphere. Is yeah, what I'm saying. So it's um, you can go over to uh, radicalmedia.com to check out some of the videos um, by Jeff. You just look up his director page or whatever. You can see some of the stuff that he did, and it's all really, really good. Did you see um, Art of Racing in the Rain? Yes, I didn't. So I read the book first, right? And then years have a later, when I heard that they were making a movie, I was super excited. And I know he had a huge uh, help in making that film. Yes, he did. And so it is. It is one of my favorite movies, actually. Really? Yeah. yeah. I'll have to, uh, I don't want any spoilers. I'll have to check that one out. Did you know that at Luft, like, do you notice that when you're walking Chris, around? the dog. The dog? What about the dog? Do you want to know? No. <laughs> I don't want to know anything. Don't tell me anything. Um, one of the things we talked about in the interview, which I thought was really interesting, is when you walk around Luft and you look at, wow, this is really picturesque. This is really, really great. All these cars are in these perfect locations. Right. Yeah, I wonder why. It's because he placed, he walked around and said, okay, I would like to take a photo of a car here. And then he just put a car there. Right. Which is really, really cool. So everybody awesome. he basically says, you know, if anybody's, uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll let you, you know, hear it in the interview. It's really, really interesting. He also did a ton of work for BMW in the 1980s. He says, quote, I shot the most BMW ads in my 10-year print career. Um, BMW's tagline was the ultimate driving machine, and every ad we shot felt like that. Wow. So back then they had they had him do all of their photography. So wow. it was like all this look, and he shot with like Kodachrome. Okay. Everything was shot on film, and you can all tell it all has a good look to it. It all looks like it was done by the same person. Which it was. it was. So that's uh, that's really, really interesting. And I think you guys will really like the interview. We talk a lot. I've, obviously, I want to talk to him about filmmaking and photography and stuff like that. And we talk a little bit about Pikes Peak. He's a Pikes Peak champion. That's right. Yeah, he's in the under 10 second club. Wow. So he's, I mean... He's, he's accomplished. He's accomplished man. And he did a, he did a rally in his 914.6 from... Um, uh, South America to Alaska, like a ten thousand mile rally. Wow! In, a car, in the car he bought himself. 
you know, his very own wow. 914.6. Uh, he's just a really, really interesting guy. So I think you guys will really, really like the interview. But before we get to that, what have you got for us? Yeah, let's talk about Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select new items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, tools, all sorts of stuff. They box it up and send it right there to your doorstep. And there's actually two different levels of subscription you can choose from. The Petrobox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. All right, guys, here's one of my favorite content creators and one of my favorite interviews that we've done. I was really looking forward to it. Uh, here is Jeff Zwart. Mr. Jeff Zwart, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thanks. No, it's uh, good timing to do it, and uh, I'm enjoy. I've always enjoyed uh, what you're up to. So, certainly to uh, visit a bit in this way is a good way to go. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of stuff that you do, I love, and there's things that I do like the photography that you do. Um, I, I I fancy myself a you know nowhere near in your league, but I love doing films and 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 that kind of thing. And obviously, I love driving. Um, so everything that you do, I'm kind of copacetic with. I have I have an affinity with it with you. Well, I've seen some of your work. It's not bad at all. So <laughs> don't don't, uh, don't uh, rule it out as a future because, uh, you know, definitely uh, I'd love to see how you chronicle your journeys and it's done in such a high level always. And so uh, I'm uh, definitely impressed. You know, that's the thing is, you know, I may be, you know, a full-time filmmaker and, you know, doing a lot of things that are obviously somewhat big budget, but, you know, I'm constantly wowed by the people who, do so much with two or three people and just traveling along and documenting what they do. Cause it's, it's about your eye and about your point of view and those kinds of things. So uh, it's definitely fun when I follow somebody or, or come upon something that it's true, truly there that they've got that point of view. And I love it. I think that some of the smaller production stuff is what's really as, you know, especially with as people's budgets are having trouble in the next year or two, right? Everybody's going to kind of have, yeah. you know, the purse strings, strings are going to be tight. I think you'll have people reaching out to, you know, people that can produce everything themselves. You know, you used to have yep. like a personality and then you'd send like a crew with them and then you would film something and do it. But these people that can do everything, I think that's really going to be something that'll take off a little bit. Yeah, no, it's fun. And, you know, I launched a little film on Instagram today and, and uh, it's a little three and a half minute film, but, you know, pretty much, seriously, only three of us did the whole film. So it was right. fun. So, well, it's it become good. easier to produce now. I mean, equipment has become so much smaller yeah. and more accessible and the quality barrier is, is something that is almost completely gone at this point. Yeah. I look at, I look at kind of our whole business as having this 5d moment where suddenly a camera that still photographers were using spit out this unbelievable you know, look and feel of almost film that way that camera put out the video feed was so um, compelling than the look of it. So if you had somebody who knew where to point the camera and, you know, somebody that had that kind of uh, vision of telling stories, that camera instantly made them a storyteller in the movie sense, as opposed to just a still photographer. So that really was a pivotal moment. And things have only gotten better since the Canon 5D and everybody's kind of up their game. So, you know, and it's nice for me too, because, you know, even on my shoots, uh, you know, I used to run around with a 60 pound camera with, you know, lenses that cost over a hundred thousand dollars, some of them. And, you know, when you 
haul all that equipment around, you just can't be that spontaneous and that fluid to things. Uh, you know, you've always got to have somebody handling and helping you with it. And so it's nice because in my business now, I'm shooting with something that I can hold in the palm of my hand and and uh, move around easy and, you know, shoot handheld or shoot whatever you want very quickly and be very reactive to the situation, which we didn't really have in the old film, or film days. Do you think that the the learning curve is a good thing or a bad thing? Because I learned on to shoot photography on film, you know, you, the mistakes were devastating, right? I mean, you'd go, you think you had something right. And you'd be excited to go and it was just ruined. And now you can see it now. I mean, it's right now. Do you think that that contrast of, of failure has made things, I don't know if you know what I'm getting at. Just, is it better to learn now than it was back then? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tricky question because I find that um, it's it's made people a bit sloppy. You know, um, just to give you some idea, I mean, if I go back to my still days, you know, everything was based on a 36 exposure roll of film. And I would leave on a job with, you know, 20 rolls of film. Okay, so that's that's only 720 pictures right. that I could take on that whole job. and. So you'd pace yourself and you'd make sure you had film left for the last shots and, you know, you would bracket a little bit maybe on some shots, but everything was so precise and so thought out and, and it really, and especially shooting action where moments didn't happen again, you know, you had to really nail it, not just on focus, but also on exposure and then in camera movement, all those kind of things. And you never realized, as you said, your results till the following day, if you were on you know you it was actually a luxury to see it the following day because that would only happen when you're in la when i was traveling and i'd be in some faraway place or out in the desert somewhere or something you know sometimes it'd be you know a week before i'd see actual results before i got home so there was a a lot of challenge to that and now you know who doesn't shoot 720 pictures before they even you know get to yeah every know, single person that looked with their phone took 720 <laughs> yeah, pictures yeah. right <laughs> so so but you know put that in perspective you know i went on you know high paying jobs with you know not you know a definitive amount of film i could shoot it was, there was no erasing and putting it back on the car well, you could shoot with a polaroid back right so you could you know you could get some could, sort of yeah. sense of what was going on you did but a lot of times uh you were working faster than that so shooting on the polaroid backs were a little tricky and you know 35 millimeter you know you, we had a 35 millimeter camera dedicated with a polaroid back and and you would uh but it, you would have to kind of change over to it move lens to it lenses to it i would generally have my assistants kind of shooting with the polaroids but you know it was still just a 35 millimeter polaroid so you really couldn't tell focus you couldn't right. tell a lot of things on it and generally because you know the way we worked it was also just black and white so you you, you know it wasn't the best for the project have you seen the cost yes. of those polaroid uh the film they don't make it anymore like the fuji fp 100 yeah. or whatever it is it's yeah. 40 dollars a pack <laughs> I know, it's pretty amazing because you know the, it's actually gotten kind of cool of what kind of polaroid style cameras are out there now but uh you know just it still is hard to beat what we have on our iphone and and you know, and the same thing happened in my film business too, is that we just are loading cards and shooting more. But I guess to ask, answer your original question, I think, yes, it's good. As soon as you shoot something, you can look at it and decide whether you did the right thing and, and 
all you know take in everything literally i'm looking at it the instant you take a picture but i think making photography a craft you need to really spend time in designing and i think that's the part that i didn't have the volume of imagery to go through when i got back to you know choose from and so your odds were very low in those days so you had to make those pictures count now right. you know you can shoot a volume of things and something's going to work and i think it's the photographers that still almost approach it as the original craft that i enjoyed which is really spending time on each photo that's those are the guys that are excelling now and and the same goes for um, filmmaking is that I, I made a transition from shooting stills all over the world for multiple clients and doing things really in a, a kind of a big time way. When I went into film, I still look at images and design shots and think about where the car is in that shot and how the negative space works and all those kind of things. I think I use my still intuition in my filmmaking. And I think that helps because it's not just setting a camera on a tripod and let it roll, you know. This is where you want to kind of design things and think about where they are. And that comes from my stills background. And not a lot of people have a stills background like I did now. Right, right. So why did you get into filmmaking in the first place? Where did that start for you? Um, you know, surprisingly, it goes back further than even I think about of it. Um, in, you know... It wasn't clear to me that filmmaking was a business because, you know, my father was a plastics engineer. My mother was an elementary school teacher. So we lived kind of a small, conservative life. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't in the arts district or in Hollywood or anything like that. So I wasn't really seeing that side of the business. So I looked at things like photography and filmmaking as uh, a hobby. But yet, even in high school, I took. Uh, you know, I took film super eight in those days, but film classes even in high school. And I shot a number of films in high school, but it was always with the intention of, oh, I just like to do it. But that was not going to be what my profession was. And so it really came did about. Did you have an idea uh, of what your pres your profession was going to be then? What did you want to do? Yeah, no, for or sure. think you wanted I, to do? Uh, you know, once you're done wanting to be an astronaut and a fireman <laughs> and kind of things like that, yeah. you know, I. I decided I wanted to be a veterinarian. We always had dogs. I always loved animals. I decided I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I started working uh, for a veterinarian at age 15 and worked steadily all through high school until uh, I graduated. Then I went to a pre-veterinary program uh, in college. And then I looked at the odds of getting into one of the uh, one of the veterinary schools in California, which there only was one. And it was a very difficult thing. Actually, it would have been easier to be a doctor than it was a veterinarian, or at least to get into the school. And so uh, I chose to go to Europe uh, because uh, there was uh, two or three veterinary schools in Germany. And uh, the one I wanted to attend in Munich uh, took 29 uh, foreign students every year. So I basically left college here in the United States, went to Europe, uh, Went to Munich, uh, started looking for a job, and ultimately ended up with a job uh, with a uh, large animal veterinarian in, in Germany. And the goal was to spend a year working for the large animal veterinarian, getting the contacts going, and then uh, 
apply to school there, plus work on my language to get so I was fairly fluent in German before I went off to the university. So that was all the goal of going to Germany was right. to ultimately go to veterinary school in Germany. And while I was in Germany, which, you know, Europe is such a car centric country, such a motorsport centric country, and I absolutely love motorsport. I just started going to the train station on Friday nights. And after I was done working for the week and I uh, would get on the train and wake up in Belgium at Spa or wake up at Le Mans or at Sanford in Holland. I, I went to Hockenheim, all those things. I would just get on the train at night and wake up the next morning wherever I wanted to go. And, and uh, so I started going to races. And naturally, because I had that photography as a hobby in high school and filmmaking, I just started taking pictures while I was at those races. So what were you shooting? It, um, I would have been shooting with a Canon FT in those days, a non-motorized camera, but that, I think that was the camera I traveled with. I still have that Canon camera, but um, it, it just, and I had a couple lenses for it and I took those to Germany with me just because I still enjoyed it as a hobby. But, but it was really there being in those situations of, of watching the whole landscape of racing, seeing, you know, I just loved it. I was so compelled by the excitement and the action and everything about it, not thinking, you know, I sure, I wanted to be a race driver, you know, at that point, but I didn't know how that was going to happen. I looked around, I saw the mechanics in the pits. I thought, oh, that's cool, but, you know, I'm not mechanically inclined. And then I kept seeing where I was on the other side of the fence the people closest to the action and in the exciting places were the photographers. And I just thought, you know, I, if I could be around racing and be a photographer, I'd be right there. So uh, that's how it really captivated me. And, and while I was in Germany, I wrote a letter to my parents and said, I just don't think that veterinary medicine is what I really want to do. I really want to be a photographer. And I, I've you know started researching schools to go to and the rest is history. But I mean, your parents, you had a lot of time invested in veterinary medicine at the time. Oh, yeah. That must, I mean, was the response, yeah, sure. Or was it like, oh, Jeff, no. You know, uh, they, you know, I was an only child. We were always traveling as a family. We were really close. And so I, um, you know, I think they, they kind of knew what's up with their kid pretty well. And they knew I always was super creative, but like I said, we weren't in a, family that creativity was you know what their business was it might both my parents i would say were quite creative but they didn't apply it to their own business they applied it as a hobby so right. i i think that's where um they knew more than i did a little bit that that i was you know i was determined enough and i would try to make that work but you know, funny enough they did the letter they sent back to me in germany i actually said you know it's going to be if you're a veterinarian, you'll be set. That's your life, and you'll have a business for the rest of your life and everything. If you are a photographer, it's going to be a real struggle. It's really a hard business and you know, all that. So they told me all that. But you know, I had, I had identified three schools as potential to go to the United States. And it seemed like because I had a distant friend who had taken that path of going to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And, and so... I got back from Europe with quite a little portfolio from uh, races and things I shot in Europe. And I applied to Art Center and gave them my portfolio that I had shot. And uh, I was accepted to go there. And 
it was it the cool thing about art center which i didn't have in my own personal life was that virtually every instructor i had was also working in the business and so by him working in the business you got a look into not just the world of photography but what it was like to do it as a business that's, that's the hard part our, that's the yeah, tough that's part. the really hard part because everybody can take a great picture. Everybody, you know, can they, they, you can believe in all that. Especially now, it wasn't so true then, but but at that time, that was it. And so I, I uh, getting in there, it was just like, whoa, you know, these guys are traveling and they have assistants and they have a yeah, big studio and they can park their own car in their <laughs> studio while they're working. You know, all that stuff was just like so cool to me. What was your first? So you, you went to school. Obviously, you, you you graduated from there. You did your thing. What was your first paying gig? What was the first thing you got a check for? Well, it was interesting because I really was. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I I was pretty ambitious. So even before I was out of school, I was working for different uh, magazines and different things. But I will say that the my highest aspiration when I went to Art Center was if I could someday shoot something for Road and Track magazine. Because okay. Road and Track magazine had been such an influence. You know, there were three magazines at the time that were kind of in the zone I was interested in, which was sports cars. It was Motor Trend, Car and Driver, and Road and Track. And, you know, the big, but the biggest magazine of all was Hot Rod, but I wasn't really that interested in Hot Rod. So, um, and if you looked at those three magazines, Car and Driver was about the writing. Road and track was about the art and the photography, and I'm generalizing. And Motor Trend was more on the domestic kind of car side of things. So for me, road and track was the part, the thing that I really associated with. My father always subscribed to it, all that sort of thing. So when I went into Art Center, that's what my aspiration was. So, and you were into the European cars because your dad had a 911, right? That's kind of yeah. what you learned how to drive on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and to, you know, funny enough, to go back to that first part of the story is that the road and track magazine hired me maybe a year out of school and uh, maybe even less than a year out of school. And I, the first assignment I got from them was to shoot a cover. And I was so nervous to shoot a cover story for a magazine that had almost a million circulation in those days. It was just such a big deal. And I remember I was like up all night the night before and I I did a camera rig shot where the camera was mounted to the car because that was kind of my specialty coming out of school was mounting cameras for, you know, still kind of blurry action things. And so anyway, that was my first cover. And then after that, I probably shot 30 covers at least for road and truck through the years. What, but what was on the cover? What was it? Uh, it was a Z. Okay. <laughs> it was, I, I shot a T-top Z. So <laughs> it was good. But that was kind of my first big break in there. And the nice thing about uh, road and track was in, in any editorial work was that you know, it wasn't an anonymous situation for a photographer. Your name was next to all the photos that you shot. So, you know, by doing a good job for road and track, hopefully people in advertising agencies and clients and big manufacturers and things, they were all noticing your name. So that certainly opened the door to move on to advertising. And advertising was really my, you know, the high point of photography for me. Is that where you transitioned into doing filmmaking? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, that was a funny transition because I always saw myself as a as still photographer. And I twice in my career, I had covers of 
uh, American Photographer. American Photographer was the premier photography magazine in the United States. And it was really a big magazine and it was super, uh, you know, it was super cool to have a cover. And I had two of them through my career. Well, the second one did a whole in-depth thing on me and they called me the high-performance photographer. And so on the, co the cover story was Jeff Swart, high-performance photographer. Well, that kind of put me in a different light with everybody and virtually every picture they ran in for the story was action shots and things and i got three offers from that story and i'd never had an offer before that three offers to direct television commercials and join a production company and it was at that point i was heavily had heavily shot bmw shooting porsche shooting virtually everything for those guys and then secondarily Mercedes and, you know, just kind of everybody, but certainly BMW was probably, I shot more ads for BMW than anybody uh, in those days. And then Porsche was a mainstay client. And then, so that still out of that came this offer and I chose to join a production company that I'm still with, which is Radical Media. We'll be right back with Jeff in a second. But first, let's talk about Oberk. Oberk is a Midwest manufacturer of polishing compounds and supplies that is researched, tested, and developed by professional detailers. Oberk products are designed to decimate swirls, holograms, and oxidation on your vehicle's paint. Right now, Oberk is actually offering 20% off any order online with the code OVERCREST. Now, the discount code is good not only at Oberk carcare.com but also on carsupplieswarehouse.com and detailedimage.com and this really is awesome product i've used it several times you guys need to go check it out so one thing that um i noticed that i saw a couple times when i'm looking at your film work and stuff like that is you you seem to be good with the quote visual representation of speed and <laughs> so obviously you can show speed by just showing speed right i mean you can show a car going fast you can show you know, motion or whatever, but how do you go beyond the literal to achieve bringing a sensation of speed to the viewer without just being like, here's how fast it's going? You know, how do you approach that process? Uh, you know, it's funny for me, it's a little different. You know, first of all, you know, the art of filmmaking and the art of driving are probably the two most unintimidating things in my life. You know, a car moves me forward every day and because that car is my enabler to do everything, including my racing all over the world and all the things I do. It's just given me such a perspective. Plus, from a racing sense, you know, I've driven a car to an absolute limit, to the edges of cliffs and to the, to, and virtually kind of almost all range of cars I've been able to drive in my life, not just around the block, but, you know, in a, in a pretty spirited way. And I think that the racing certainly has given me a perspective from more of a driver's eye. And so even when I look at a corner, I just can imagine what that car would look like before it's there and what speed it would need to travel so that it looks comfortable and not uncomfortable. And then if I'm racing, even at times, you know, going up Pikes Peak or going on a stage of a rally or something, you know, I turn into a corner and pitch it in there and slice off through the you know, apex and the front wheels come off the ground uh, as I go through there because uh, it's hit a little bump or things like that. And it's funny, as I, even as I do that, even when I'm racing, I think, oh, I hope there's a photographer there because that would have been a good <laughs> shot. So I kind of, so to answer your question, I kind of go both ways. I, I visually interpret speed 
yes. And I use my driving at speed to help me interpret that. And it's really something where it's been a very positive thing in my life where each motivates the other. My racing motivates my filmmaking and my filmmaking motivates my racing. So um, I'm in a very nice zone where it's been a very satisfying area for me to work in. And like I said, a very unintimidating place to work in too. So we know that racing is dangerous and we know that filming cars (laughs) is dangerous, Um, but they're all each dangerous in their own way. But filming, have you encountered any dangerous situations or things that have been a little harrowing? Um, You know, I think we're on the edge of things a lot and, you know, uh, life has gotten a little safer now. And, uh, you know, we used to kind of ride on the outside of high speed camera cars and things on platforms and be tethered in with, you know, basically climbing harnesses and stuff like that. And now, you know, I'll sit in the back seat of a Panamera with a full roll cage and, you know, chase Jimmy Johnson at 125, 130 miles an hour around Atlanta Motor Speedway for a Chevy commercial, those kind of things. You feel pretty good. And you know, the camera's on the roof of the car on a big arm and you've got all these people around you. And I think that's been a really great thing with my film making and my uh, length of time I've been at it. I've ended up with an amazing crew and all of us really uh, respect each other and look out for each other. But yet all of us know that we need to put things on the limit a lot of times to do the shots we do. And, you know, we've had (laughs) brakes light on fire on camera cars because we're (laughs) late breaking things. And, you know, we've had stuff like that along the way. So I've really surrounded myself with a great team that is, you know, puts things to the edge, but also in a very safe way. And we all trust each other. You know, when you take a, you know, a camera car situation, which is with five people in it easily, you know, 10,000 pounds sometimes with everything in it. And then you take the most high performance, you know, Chevrolet ZR1 or whatever that shooting. And you put somebody like Reese Millen or Tanner Faust or Paul Dolenbach. Those are the three drivers I use the most. You put them in there and, you know, we're all kind of upping our game because each one of us are pretty good at what we do. Right. And, and so there's that kind of side of it. And then I just think that, you know, I, I've had close calls, certainly, where you thought the road was closed and the highway patrol said it's closed and somehow a car slips through and we're coming down the wrong side of the road filming uh, the subject car and suddenly there's wall-to-wall car in front of us and it's just thankful that we have a very uh, aware crew. But I think my closest moment was probably on a Nissan job in Colorado we were working at over 12,000 feet with a uh, helicopter, and uh, we had a full compressor failure because we were flying the helicopter sideways to get the shot I needed at this altitude. Suddenly, there wasn't enough air running into the engine because we were so sideways, and the engine basically shut off, and uh, we had to pitch you know, the helicopter over the edge of the road, and fortunately... We were in an avalanche chute area, so I'm looking at the monitor of the camera from the nose of the helicopter, and I see, first I see the sky where we pitch up when the engine failed, and then we rotate it, and then I saw the tops of the trees, then I saw the middle of the trees, and then I saw the ground rush, and, you know, you just figure, well, 
that's uh, this is going to be a big one. You know, this is it. <laughs> and the pilot, who's a wonderful pilot, who's flown me for you know for almost thirty years, he was able to restart the helicopter by going as fast as we were down the hill, get the air back in it. And he waited till the last minute, and we pulled up at the bottom, and engines were running. But you know, the whole crew's there, not far away. Everybody heard the helicopter shut off, and the driver of the Nissan just saw us disappear over the edge without any engine running and it, everybody it frightened everybody so oh, i'm sure um, well drones so, are much safer <laughs> yeah drones are safer except i have had those fall out of the sky too but yeah, obviously nobody uh, as long as i'm falling anybody nobody gets hurt but you know that was my closest call so but i i still you know we are using drones a lot and it's evolving so quickly and i love it it's exciting but i do miss my helicopter rides on a regular basis so i think it's good. the big difference is obviously you can use real glass when you're in a helicopter right i mean you can use a real camera drones are great but let's be honest yeah. the glass that's in these drones is not very good well but you know the drones i'm using now they're running an aeroflex and they're running my prime lenses and they're they're uh, they're you know it's true in the beginning we kind of were limited to what they had on them but now they're carrying a pretty sizable payload and like i said earlier my camera has actually gotten smaller and you know when you look at an airy airy mini and with a prime lens on it it's not too big of a package to carry around and uh, but the fun thing is now we're getting into the racing drones and they can be a much more active and then that goes back to using the glass that's on those so uh, it's good but funny enough you know our business things happen so quickly and uh, meaning cut wise within the spots and everything you you know you don't kind of miss the quality a lot of times because you're so wrapped up by the enhanced action these things give you right right so when you were you know first starting out you bought a 914.6 and that was the, <laughs> the first car that you bought for yourself right yep yep and what possessed you now when i was doing a little bit of research i just noticed oh jeff decided that he was just going to take this new car that he bought from tierra del fuego to prudo bay basically what on this rally <laughs> it wasn't quite that far but well yeah. Yeah, so 20, some thousands and 20,000 miles or something i mean that's it was 10,000 miles so yeah okay all right 10,000 what what but, but still it was a long way and tell me about was, this journey well it was funny because uh you know at that point i had been in rallying for um, a number of years i'd raced at pike's peak for oh let's see if i do the math here i'd raced at pike's peak for about 4 years or 5 years uh and uh, so, you know, rallying, I was really hooked on rallying. I, I was national champion of the open class national champion in the U.S. Pro Rally Championship in 1990. So all of that was adding up to me trying to pursue to do more and more things in rallying. And so, you know, I was always attracted to these long distance events that I would see of like, you know, London to Mexico and, you know, uh, London to Sydney and kind of these these epic adventures because you know I look at rallying rallying to me is kind of like high speed location scouting you know so you're going down roads that you've never been down before and all that kind of stuff so it really had a lot in parallel with my filmmaking but I I um, you know had heard about this rally and this uh, organizer who had done a number of long distance events so along comes this twenty five day ten thousand mile event from panama to alaska an fia marathon rally and the catch to it was it was a stage format rally so it was you know you weren't worrying about the transits you were just trying to do 
top fastest times on all the closed stages and special stages. So, so it was really in my wheelhouse of what I like to do. But the catch in it was that it had to be a 1972 or earlier car. And so I thought, oh, man, that'd be, you know, I'd love to do it in my 914.6. And I'm thinking, well, no, I've had, I've had this, this 914.6 since high school. I wouldn't want to ruin it on a, an event like this. And then, then my mind's going, well, if I do really well um, and I'm done with this race, I'll want to keep that car that I do really, if I did well in it, right. I'd want to keep that car. So it was kind of a funny uh, dilemma for a moment there to take my kind of absolutely perfect little 914. But I just said, you know, to have a life adventure in my 914 and do an event like this and whatever happens, happens, um, that would be great. So we decided to build my car into a full race car because at that point it was just a street car without a roll cage and right. all the chassis stifting in it and everything else. And so we built it into it and kind of <laughs> changed it certainly from what I, I had bought out of high school. But the coolest thing about that moment or that whole event was getting to do it was we had uh, as everybody did had a service vehicle chasing us so we shipped my defender 110 to panama and uh in the service vehicle there was room for two people so i had a mechanic who had actually been trained at the porsche factory in the carburetor days in the early 60s and so he he knew all about carbureted cars and you know all that kind of stuff plus he was from argentina so he spoke spanish and uh, he could uh, negotiate our way through Central America. And then there was room for one more person. And I decided to have my dad with me. And so my dad went along on the service crew. And it was just cool. The car that my dad had kind of propelled me to buy and kind of at least motivated me to, to be interested in Porsches. Here, my dad got to chase us for 25 days. And at the end of those 25 days, we finished second overall. Um, and it was just a uh, spectacular run naturally we would have liked to have won but you know just finishing a long distance event like that it was uh pretty spectacular i always think when i'm out driving i would finish dead last i guess is my point <laughs> because i just can't not stop to to look at things i have to get yeah. out of the car and just step back and breathe and see it must have been difficult as a as a photographer and a filmmaker to not go oh my god this place is amazing i need to get out of the car but you can't yeah i remember i remember like on the second or third day we were in Costa Rica and like, you know, it was pretty jungly on the stages we were running and, you know, you're running flat out down this stage and everything. But all of a sudden there was a clearing, you know, kind of straight ahead of us. And I just come out of a corner and I looked ahead and there was this volcano just poking up out of nothing. And it's kind of got steam coming out of everything. And I was just kind of like, whoa, you know, we're really in a different place here. So, so it was cool. So you mentioned Pikes Peak, and you did some racing for Porsche at Pikes Peak, right? In a career four? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been there uh, 17 times, and I have raced 12 different Porsches there. And, and you're a part uh, of the Under it, 10 Minutes Club. Yes, I am. I mean, I'm that's one a big of the deal. few people under 10 minutes. And, uh, and it's, it, you know, my motivation going to Pikes Peak was really, you know, I'd always seen Walter Roll and Michelle Mouton and all these greats, Ari Vatnin, you know, racing up there flat out in the dirt and everything. And it just looked like the world's greatest road to apply what I knew about rallying to. So, and I was watching these masters in the world drive there. So I was super motivated to go there because of that. And then when Porsche started building a Carrera 4, which is a four-wheel drive 911, we said, okay, we can go rallying with that. And then 
you know, Pikes Peak comes along after one season. We started winning in the rally championship and uh, Porsche Motorsport, which was also Andile at the time here in the United States. They can't. They decided that if I was interested, we could run a program there. So they loaned me a single turbo, 550 horsepower um, motor from the supercar series, and uh, and uh, it took my normally aspirated 300 horsepower engine, put it on the bench, and put this other motor in it. And it was uh, definitely a funny thing to settle into the car that was exactly the same car as I'd driven before with 300 horsepower to have almost double that at Pikes Peak and go there. So it was really It's not even just double the power. It's the fact that you've got a turbo with that elevation. Yeah. As you go up, you can continue to make power. Yeah, that was the the whole reason behind it because we lose so much power with a normally aspirated motor. So they decided that since they had a turbo motor from that series that they'd loan it to me to run there. And we ended up uh, winning the open class that year and that really set the stage. So, you know, I guess 16 years later, now we've run 12 different cars. And, you know, I've I've been able, so fortunate to run the kind of the latest, greatest all along. So I've run everything from, uh, you know, turbos, uh, 993 turbos to GT2 RSs, uh, and then to the latest kind of turbo cup cars we've been building. And now this year we'll be competing again at Pikes Peak and uh, we'll be running uh, the new 935. So it'll be a spectacular spectacular car to run at Pikes Peak. And I also have an ongoing program with Porsche Motorsport uh, that I work for them at Pikes Peak. Uh, I've done that the last couple of years of coaching the GT4 Club Sport class, which is the Cayman-based GT4 uh, Club Sport car. And it's just such a cool uh, car, package of car to drive. And so we usually have six to eight competitors in that class. And I coach that class at the same time. So this year I'll be competing and coaching, which will be a little different, but what do you tell these people when you're coaching them? These people that have never driven it before, you know, the, the main thing is that I honestly pull back the curtain on my process. And it's much like the first time I ever went to Pikes Peak. I just think about the things I dealt with in those days and I translate it to them. And then I've had so many years of driving up there, you know, I give them all the nuances and and all the little details that I look for and deal with because Pikes Peak's an interesting place. It's so complex, so complex as a road, 156 turns and, you know, almost a mile of elevation change and things. So it's really a lot of knowledge that goes into it. And yes, I mean, you you can come there, you know, these days and go fast, but I, I think that, you know, Obviously, I've been at it a while, and I, you know, my, I'm not the youngest guy on the mountain for sure, but I can apply the action, the knowledge to my uh, knowledge there over kind of raw speed, and I think that it kind of is somewhat of an equalizer there. But I genuinely give the guys in the GT4 class a glimpse at how I approach it. And, and the interesting thing from, you know, till now, all these years, going back there, I still go through the same process. It's almost a little bit of a superstition to me that if I don't do exactly the same thing every day that I've done for all these years there, it's not right. So they get to see my same process I'm doing today. Well, that's what you want to do when you're doing a trek anyways. You, you're, you strive to do the same thing every lap. Yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. you're, that's what you're after anyway. Was there like a, um, a feeling or emotion you had when you found out that they were going to pave the whole thing? Um, well, the good news is it didn't happen overnight, and uh, 
So, you know, we had a little bit of pavement and a little bit of pavement. Of course, you were just going, why are they doing that? How can this be? You know, this is so um, such an amazing road. So you hated to see it happen. But once you kind of knew it was inevitable, you, uh, you know, you grasped that and said, okay, I'm going to do my best with it. And it, it really did make it extremely tricky in the uh, transitional years because, you know, first year, maybe three miles or four miles of the 12 miles were paved the next year, you know, six miles of it was paved. So, and it wasn't just one section, it was different sections of the way up. So we'd leave the line in the dirt and then end up on pavement for a while, then go back to the dirt, then go to the pavement and then finish on the dirt. So tire management and reading those surfaces of which has really great grip and which was going to be very slippery was, was to me a challenge that I really enjoyed. I, I think, you know, some of my most successful years were really when there was that transitional time. And certainly when you, when I kind of knew that the ultimate, you know, the ultimate destination for this entire mountain was to be paved, I thought, well, I'm going to take and run a road racing based car. Cause at that point we'd only run kind of rally based cars. And I said, I'm going to run a road racing based car. So I ran a GT three cup car, um, with sequential shifting and all that, but it was a cup car designed for road racing. We ran it with, um, with rain tires on it. And we just went through the transitions. I pushed really hard on the pavement and then, you know, manage the tires and the dirt and those kinds of things. So it was really fun, but, but that was really an eye opener because I broke the record by a huge amount that year in my class and everybody was like, wow, you know, this is the new world where it's going to be road racing. So naturally you went on from there and it just got more and more uh, attuned to a road racing car. Does it scare you? Pike speak? No, no. Pike speak is Pike speak is it's, it's to me, it's home. It's the, it's the track. I've, there's no track I've driven more on and it's just, it's, it's not intimidating to me. I think, you know, the intimidating part is sometimes the pressure to perform because, you know, you got close competition or you've got goals in there, but the, the mountain itself, you know, there's places you obviously don't want to make a mistake, but for the most part, I'm uh, just, I'm in my happiest time of blasting up there. It's really a fun place to drive. So you have a hand in the Luftke cult. What was the, what has that event done for your already existing passion for Porsche? <laughs> it's, Luftke cult's really, uh, really focused a lot of things for me uh you know it's interesting because i like taking good ideas and doing something with it you know let's face it my business of filmmaking is agencies and clients coming to me with an idea and seeing what i could do with it and then once i get a chance to do something with it, i love seeing it through carrying it through make it be the message the best message possible for them and so when lufka cool comes along and and Patrick Long was talking to me about this idea. He's thinking the air cool guys could all meet, you know, in a parking lot and do these things. I, I love the idea. So I went to the first one and then, you know, I've been to everyone since, but you know, my, um, the combination of skills that I get to use at Lufkukult is kind of everything I know about Porsche from the perspective I come from, which is, you know, there's a good amount of motorsport in there of historical cars. There's a great amount of road cars, which I'm very passionate about and really love the air-cooled world. And then the side that I get to be involved with is kind of overseeing the look and feel of it is that I get to position those cars and 
and kind of set up photographs for, you know, for other people to take. And so that side of it is, it's kind of a combination of everything I do in my real world, but it's focused on probably the thing I'm most passionate about, which is the air-cooled Porsche world. So it's been really fun and we've had a lot of opportunities. You know, we've done six of them in the U.S. and two of them overseas and we've got seven one coming up in North Carolina and we've got, uh, you know, we did an ice race earlier this year as a little pop-up for Lufka Colt. So it's really been, uh, it's uh, certainly more than a passion project for me. It is in my zone. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. When I went to the, I've been to the one that was in, in Hollywood at, on, on yeah. the movie sets and stuff. That's the one that I drove out to. And I remember walking around being like, wow, this is a great picture. I can take a great picture of this car. <laughs> well, now it makes sense as you setting it up. I, I get it. Yeah, no, you know, it's like, I don't get a chance to photograph anything for the most part there. So my biggest compliment is when somebody takes the picture I would have taken, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, uh, so that uh, works well for me. I've got, uh, you know, a couple thousand photographers doing my job, which is a good thing, but, but, you know, Patrick Long has been so, uh, such a visionary for it. And, you know, he's given me the seeds that I really love to, uh, you know, pursue and, and do something with, but, uh, it certainly is a, a good combination for me when I get to drop into the loose to cool world. I want to ask one more question for you, just some advice for young filmmakers. What, what can you tell them about, um, growing as a filmmaker and becoming better? And, uh, just this new generation of filmmakers that, that is coming up. What do you, what can you say to them to help them succeed? You know, I, I just think that the number one thing is that you have a point of view, you know, you don't, you know, just rolling the camera isn't enough <laughs> to call yourself a filmmaker. In my opinion, you need to have a point of view. You need to have a way of crafting a story. You need to think about how things work together, uh, you know, and creating uh, something that's a linear statement, but it has peaks and valleys in it, you know, because so many things are just on one level and uh, and you know that just doesn't provide entertainment anymore. So I think that when you can kind of craft a story and a message and, and I mean the same even goes for photography, you know you if if you're a photographer, you know and you want to get involved in you know places that will showcase your work, but in more ways than just the flat printed way in terms of, just running one photo, but to be able to craft and tell stories and cover things and, you know, give emotion in your still photography, take, you know, some, something that you and I are quite close to, which is triple zero magazine, you know, that does such a nice job of showcasing the world of, you know, photography, but yet allows stories to come out and allows a great amount of detail to come out. And so, you know, I've even shot a few things for, for triple zero and that's a great place to showcase your work so having a having a a, a uh, place to send out your work meaning that other people can see it is very important these days but it does you no good when you don't have a point of view so uh, i i look for that and like i said the camera equipments that you use to shouldn't be intimidating it should just be a part of you so i i like to see people working uh where it's pretty seamless. So I love the photographers these days that look like they don't aren't working when they're shooting. So that's a good thing. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate you spending time with me today and, and touching on the, some of the topics that really matter to me. And I hope you had a good time. And I think I'll probably end up seeing you in November. 
I hope so. I hope we see a lot of people in November and, <laughs> and thanks for having me on board. And I love your journeys and treks too. So I look forward to seeing uh, where that world takes you uh, soon enough, I hope. So soon enough. Thanks for having me. Yep. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks for having me. Yep, Take bye-bye. care. Bye. That was that was awesome. It was my pleasure to have him on. I'm glad he, we were able to, I mean, there were so many questions I wanted to ask, but I think what we need to do is have him on again, because I want to talk about some of the projects, like individual projects that, Oh yeah. I feel like did. you could just delve into, like, I want to know about the Red Bull project. I want to know how some of this stuff was filmed. There's, there's another one that he did with Tanner Faust driving up McLaren, which is they're driving around the track. Yes. And every, however many this feet, is the four is an ad, the four is an ad every 10 feet or maybe even less. There's a picture. And you know when you have like a little flip book with a stick man and you flip through the pages, <laughs> the little stick man starts like running yep. or it you know, falls down or whatever, you know, yeah. you have a little, uh, what is it called? Frame rate. Frame rate. Frame, no, I don't know what it's called, what the, what the animation, stop animation. Oh, yeah. And it's, so all around the track are these pictures, okay? And uh, Tanner Faust is driving a McLaren with a camera on it and his speed is set to go by all of these pictures that are on the side of the track right and he matches the frame rate so every time every time the frame hits on the car's camera there is a picture of a car in the frame next to the track and it's this amazing amazing sensation of basically it's in gameplay of forza sure uh, in another mclaren so it's this car driving around the track filming itself in a video game and it's this such a cool concept it's really a great concept of and obviously the the feeling is is that it's it's one medium reaching out to another real racing versus you know sim racing or you know kind of it's a way for a esoterically for a race car and the driver to reach out into this virtual world and become part of it so it, it it's really really interesting i think you should check it out you can head over to radicalmedia.com and check That's the right. video out there um, we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode one thing I noticed is, uh, is he mentioned is being a photographer first and a filmmaker after. And that's, you know, that's how he's, I mean, I'm not Jeff. Let's be, I'm not saying I'm Jeff, <laughs> but that's how I look at things too. So yeah. when I started working with Alex, I started doing, um, I started filming with the, with the confines of composition of a photograph in my filming. Sure. So I was always using my eye for stills and applying it to how things would film. work yep. in in motion. So a lot of my stuff is like, I'm always trying to keep the, keep the object in the composition that I originally started with in my head while everything else is moving. And I think that kind of comes across a little bit in some of the films that I've done and uh, with Alex. And of course he does most of the filming. I just say, Hey, let's do this. And we, we do it together, but he's, he's the real, you know, physically holding the camera and most of the films that you see that we do some of the still shots I've done and stuff like that. But he, is really, really the magic man with the, with the hands on the camera. I just direct and produce things. But I really, really think the composition of photography makes film different than if you just started with yeah, I could filming. You know, because you're, I think you get focused a lot on the motion mm-hmm. when you just start with film. But when you start with photography, it, it slows you down. Sure. A little back bit. Back to the fundamentals. Back to the fundamentals. All right, guys, make sure you leave a five-star review. Hit that subscribe button. Go to patreon.com slash overcrest. If you want to hear more stuff like this, we really, really appreciate it. It would really help us out. Just five bucks a month. That's it. $5. Support what you love. Support what you love. $5. It's really easy to sign up. If you don't want to sign up for it, all you got to do is hit that donate button on our page. Yep. We you also just have that. Give us some money through PayPal if you'd like to help out, and we'll take care of you somehow or another. Just let us know that you did. We would really appreciate it. All right, guys. We will see you on Monday. Take care. Take care.